Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. The In Her Words podcast is sponsored by Voice Locket. That's my baby. That's my money maker. And well worth doing, whether you use us or not. Especially in the holiday season, you're probably thinking about grandma, about your mom, your dad, about the voices you would like to preserve from holidays past and the voices you want your kids, your grandkids to hear in the future. And that's what we do. Whether you use us or not, take a minute, pull somebody into a quiet room and ask them about their life. Ask them the things you always wanted to ask, the things you would want to hear in their own voice, their stories. Voice Locket, voicelocket.com. Whose voice do you want to save? This week's guest, Jessica Lackey. I know through our little business networking slash coaching slash all things business education salesy through our mutual friend and uh, mentor, Lauren Widrick, uh, who is the sales goals queen, you know, and uh, we talk about her, reference her. We were going to a holiday party at her house the night we talked. And Jessica, as you'll hear, went to Harvard Business School, worked for some of the big guns, including Nike, out on the West Coast in Portland, and decided not for her. Um, escaped the corporate machine and um, is a capital F feminist, and we talk about what that means. And we start talking about I, I drag us off into strippers and sex work and everything else. So don't don't bail before you get to that part. <laughs> um, interesting from personal experience. Jessica Lackey. I believe we're witnessing kind of the slow decline of our democracy. And I don't know what fixes that. This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Thank you for joining us. This is In Her Words, the podcast. I'm Stuart Watson. I am very grateful to you for being here. I don't think I'm gonna waste your time. It's really an enlightening conversation and I've already sort of introduced her, a really smart person. You know, steel sharpens steel. You can really glean a lot. It's, you know, keeping up with her and difficult for me. <laughs> anyway, um, really high-level conversation. Thank you. Jessica Lackey. Where were you born? I was born in Richmond, Virginia. Hospital or home? Hospital. For your mother, you're number what of how many? I am one of two. I'm the oldest. How much older? Two and a, two years and two months. Oh, okay. 
Sister or brother? He's a younger brother. Do you get along? We get along. You speak. We're very friendly. He's the reason I moved to Charlotte. Okay. Because he's still in Virginia. No, he lives here. Now. Oh, you moved to be closer to him? You moved because he talked the place up? I was living in Portland, Oregon for the last seven years before I moved to Charlotte. He moved to Charlotte with his family. It's close to my parents where they were in Richmond. Moved to Charlotte to put down roots here so I could be with my family. And then a year later, my parents moved to Charlotte. Now we all live 20 minutes away from each other. Oh, that's wonderful. How did you feel about Portland? I loved Portland. It's where I became really an adult. There's the there's the becoming an adult legally, and then there's the becoming the next adult version of who you are. And that's where I found myself in Portland. I was, quote unquote, made in Portland. What appealed? What What's the attraction? Well, I wanted to move to Portland because I could work at Nike, which mm. is where I worked, and then still live in a walkable downtown area with a 30-minute commute. Mm-hmm. But when I got there, I realized how much of it, it was, it was a vibrant city. It was walkable. It had food. But it had a soul and a spirit to it that was missing from many of the other cities I'd been to. It was small enough to get around, but vibrant enough to never be boring. Were you here for like the big protests and the, you know, cops and the the whole, the feds getting involved in the whole nine yards? No, no, that was during COVID. I was there for early stage protests, but I'd um, already left by the time it got really, um, got really bad in Portland. Were you involved in any of the protests? No, I stay away from that. <laughs> okay. You know, I did the women's march or I was there for the women's march in washington no in portland there was a huge women's march in portland um after the 2016 election in 2017 but there the protests were two groups going at each other Ah. and um that's not a place for a single woman to be necessarily so i you know very much fight for um civil rights and for justice and equality and um but not in a way that puts my body on the line. Not quite there. I'm not intimating <laughs> that there's any right or wrong oh, yeah. answer to that because I have been to some of the women's marches and with my kids, with my wife, and um, or I rather I should say some of the pro-choice, pro-abortion marches. Yeah. And I wonder to myself, is this just a feel good for me? This can't be all I'm doing. So school a man. How do you think men can support women's full rights, economic, political, and social now? I think it's looking at where we spend our money, our time, and our attention. Um, you know, who are we electing to office and how are we using our power and influence to put those in power that are going to champion the rights we want to see? Um, where are we putting our money from? A, who are we shopping with? Where are we spending our time online? Whose voices are we amplifying? Like what you're doing now is amplifying women's voices, which is incredibly powerful. And then it's recognizing, I think, for all of us who are in, you know, different positions of power that relate to the mythical norm of being a white cis het male 
um, where do where can we wield our power for collective thriving versus where do we have to say, oh, no, it's my time to actually stop and listen and create the silence and the space for those other voices who aren't being heard and who aren't being shared? How do we create the space for them? And instead of being the face, how do we support and amplify those voices that are otherwise not heard? So those are the ways that, you know, on a micro perspective, I think we can um, really create change and create space is really saying, who do we, who needs the stage to, to share those voices and how can we put them on the positions to do that? Just giving you the mic doesn't feel like very much. It really doesn't. You think it really doesn't, but, you know, we just elected our first Gen Zer to Congress. Um, you know, he's had to start somewhere. So, um, part of my part of the my business model is giving back and giving of my time and my money to women's organiza organizations led by women as part of a you know collective crowdfunding campaign. You know, they're creating real ripples, and I think it's like yes, giving us the mic one time doesn't really create that ripple, but does it? You know, we're part of a community. We know each other as part of a community that really centers being in a community and we buy from each other and we work with each other and that creates that ecosystem. How big can we make that ecosystem of people looking out for people? And I think that's what really, that's what creates change is those relationships in that community that has to kind of start from the ground up because, you know, it doesn't start top down. The people in the power don't necessarily want to give up the power. So how do we band together as a, as a strong community of individuals fighting for what we want to be different in the world. So the first meeting I went to in our little squad with Lauren Widrick, our little business networking group, I'll set the table, 12 women and me. Mm -hmm. And I was like, ooh, I was nervous. What is an incumbent upon the old white guy to know? <laughs> I think it's uh, being the only is is there's a difference between being the only from a position that's kind of historically underrepresented um, where you almost feel like you have to fight for your space and being uh, the only in a room where historically you are given more power because of where, you know, because of, you know, the world we live in. And I think it's a wonderful opportunity to listen to offer support, to offer connections, to offer resources, to offer, to share what you have in order to lift everybody up. And not in, you know, it's not in a mansplaining way. It's a, you know, you are also the oldest person in the room when I was there. You have a lot of experience that all of us don't. And I think if you're approaching it from a position of, of giving versus a position of explaining, I think that's a very different dynamic. But think about all the connections that you have generated over your career and the fact that you are using your position and your skills to lift up and highlight the voices that don't get heard. Like that's really powerful. So being in the room and saying, I'm going to hear the, the stories of all these women and I'm going to use whatever resources I have to make those stories more powerful, to make them more compelling, to have more people hear them. I think that's what you do in the room and that's what you're doing here. I know that at least a couple of us who were in that room with you have been able to be interviewed by you and to be spotlighted by you. And that's a huge, 
it's a huge deal for how do we get these voices out in the world. Well, it's also in my enlightened self-interest because there are a lot of very powerful women. So what is your story? What is your business? And how did you leave working for a huge corporation, Nike, and come to work for yourself? So it started, the crucible moment was I was in 2015 working in one of those super high-powered, high-stress jobs, good on paper, like really good on paper, financially secure, upward mobility. And I was I was a mess. I was crying in my boss's office who, you know, doesn't like women's tears. And I knew something was wrong. I had been on the upward trajectory, gilded handcuffs type path for my entire life. Uh, engineering, graduate school, consulting at McKinsey & Company, going to Harvard Business School, working at Nike. Like my resume reads like catnip. And as a human, I was miserable. I had, you know, I was abusing my body with alcohol and food. I didn't know who I was. And so I spent all my time either working or coping. And at some point my body just gave out and said, you can't do this anymore. You are destroying your life. And that's when I stopped and said, I need to do something different. So I started down this holistic path to find out who I was. I became a holistic nutritionist. I became a life coach. I moved to Charlotte, spent a, worked here, worked a, a bridge job. Um, and during the pandemic, I said, I no longer want to work for an organization that makes me feel like crap. And I no longer want to work for an organization where I am giving my power, my gifts, my soul, my body, my agency to an organization that's making a private, privately held organization run by white men more money. I don't want to do that anymore um, because that's not what my life is for. My life is for democratizing access to business fundamentals education, making it so that it's not behind the ivory towers of the McKinsey's and the Harvard Business Schools, and to basically help women and underrepresented businesses build sustainable roots that don't fall prey to the trappings of traditional online business. So how do we build a thriving ecosystem that puts people before profit? Not that profit's not important but that doesn't center shareholder value at the expense of everything that we hold dear in the societal fabric that we're a part of. What are those biggest traps in online businesses? What are the common ones? The common ones is, again, kind of falling falling prey to uh, manipulative marketing. So it's like very much a diet culture industry. We're going to shame you into thinking that you need to fit a mythical norm of what your body's supposed to look like. We're gonna sell you kind of the strategies to do it, but that actually don't really solve the problems of like why we quote unquote can't lose weight. Um, doesn't address systems of care, doesn't address like the degradation of our food system. It just says, you should look like this. So here's spend more money on trying to fit a, find, fit a narrative. And then that doesn't work and you keep spending more money. So, you know, manipulative marketing that's triggering, but also like this, you know, we, you know, we look at Amazon and we look at big corporations and they pay people so little so that, you know, we can't take days off. We can't actually, you know, people can't go to the bathroom when they're working on the assembly lines and it's for more and more profit and more and more privatization of wealth. And I'm on, you know, people should have, people should be able to, to, to create and generate wealth, but not at the expense of like the human society fabric. 
So when we do this to ourselves as small businesses, we center profits before people. We are like, we must grow quarter after quarter linearly, like without a break. You know, we look at how do we like get by with the cheapest cost thing versus saying, what do I really need to run my business? And how do I avoid getting like buying program after program of short-term support versus actually making real investments that I feel secure in? Those are some of the uh, the trappings. I also have a big problem with MLMs of like, you know, you can do this Multi-level too. Multi-level marketing. Multi-level marketing, yes. As a way up. As a way up, right? Which is really like a pyramid scheme, you know. Well, there are distinct differences. There but, are, but yes. Um, yeah, I, I take your meaning having looked into them. Uh, whether or not they meet the legal definition of pyramid schemes, they can certainly be a treadmill. Yeah. Yeah, it's how do we, it's we're selling a fantasy of entrepreneurship and freedom when that's not the reality of how difficult it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but how do we make it easier for um, women to build businesses without feeling like they're always feeling behind? And that's what I want to, that's what I want to do with my life is to help people feel confident and know their numbers and grow sustainably and feel like they can navigate through this world of entrepreneurship. Um, if that's the choice they want to make to go on this crazy rocket ride. Um, how's it going? How do you, how do you think it's going? I think it's going really good. I've only been doing this in this context for a little over a year Mm -hmm. and I'm finding my place. I'm finding my pace. I'm finding the methodology that works for me. And I get to work with amazing human beings in a way that works for my, what I had, can handle from a capacity perspective. My last job required me to be at the office at 8 in the morning, which I didn't actually know when I got there because I would like roll in at 8.30 and leave at 7. And I would get the side eye from some of my coworkers like, you should be here at 8. I'm like, one. My brain doesn't work that well. I have to get up at like six in order to be here by eight. And two, I'm here till 7.30. Like I don't have a family. I didn't at that point have um, a husband. So let me work my 11 hour days on my schedule and not on yours. And I think that's what entrepreneurship allows me to do. It allows me to have deep thoughts and like write like long posts on a Saturday morning and not feel like, oh, I'm working on the weekend, right? It's it's how I it's how I can express what I have to give in how it honors like my body and my seasonality and my rhythms. And that's, I think, what's been amazing about the past year. I think the great resignation was people at all levels. They could be the high-powered Harvard Business School grads, but they could also be right there serving the French fries. Mm -hmm. And they all said, we don't have to do this. Yeah. The good news about for me for the great resignation is – I had been planning my resignation for like 18 months before I gave it, or roughly 12. So January 2020, before the pandemic started, I told my boss at my last job, I was like, I need to look for a new job, either here or somewhere else at the end of the project, which is going to last, going to be like October of 2021, 2020 at that point. And he's like, okay, what happens if you don't find anything here? I'm like, I'll just do something else. And then in July, I got, um, I got married that year. I bought a house. It was right in the middle of the pandemic. The project was going to end at the end of the Q1 of 2021. I said, I'm going to need a new job here or somewhere else at the end of March 2021. He's like, well, we don't have anything for you. I'm like, okay. And then hit November hit and some stuff went down and I got a, you know, it's one of those, you get like, you get like one email kind of like basically saying, 
this happened on your watch. A bridge too far. A bridge too far. And I said, I just single-handedly, I mean, with a team, but like I worked, you know, 60 hours, 12-hour days delivering a full program across the finish line during COVID. And now you're going to get mad at me for something that I missed, even though that, you know, it's one of these things out of my control. Cool. We get bonuses March 2021. I will be submitting my resignation after I got my bonus. I just have to get not fired between now and then. So I had been working with a coach for a couple of years in advance, knowing that this was, I was planning. I didn't know when it was going to be the time, but all the signs lined up. And I was like, if, if I don't do this now, I'm never going to do it. So I did it. Hi, I'm Dr. Kim, the parentologist. As a wife, mom, therapist, and all-around juggler like most of you, I lead a hectic life, and sometimes that means indulging in foods on the go that my stomach doesn't always agree with. Thankfully, Pepto-Bismol provides me fast and effective relief for all kinds of upset stomachs. Having a little too many guilty pleasures at a family barbecue or birthday celebration may lead to indigestion or heartburn, so I always keep Pepto on hand to get fast relief when I need it the most. Pepto-Bismol, use as directed and keep out of reach of children. What generation do you relate to? I'm an elder millennial. Yeah. Age? Uh, 40. Okay. A little bit older than my oldest daughter. Yeah. So when you hear these millennials, they just don't want to work. They don't have the American work ethic. What goes on in your head when you hear that? What I hear is that they don't want to be subject to wage theft, which is where in order to get ahead, you can't just work the 40 hours. You need to work the 50, the 60, which you're not paid for. And then still, you know, then you're like, oh, you have to, you have to be present. You have to raise your hand. And I'm like, so I have to do unpaid labor for you in order to prove that I am competent enough to do a job that you're never going to actually promote me for anyways, because the more I do, you know, of your work. And there's no guarantee you'll make partner. There's no, there's no guarantee you'll make partner. And, you know, what work, when we center our whole lives around work, which is what I did for God, so many years, you know, it's beneficial to them because it strips us of every other like tie we have outside of work to the social fabric. It strips us of our family. It strips us of our hobbies. It strips us of our friends. It strips us of our communities. It strips us of like our places of faith. And when we don't have any identity besides who we work for, well, then of course we're going to overgive in order to maintain connection to the one tribe we have left, which is where we work. Because heaven forbid we get kind of excluded from that group. And then where do we belong? Like the best, the the worst thing for human beings is like not feeling like you belong anywhere. And if work is the only place we have and we don't belong there and we're not willing to overgive at the expense of our bodies, not even being paid for it to like just stay belonging. And that's one of the reasons I think people lopped that out because they're like, I can't give of me. I'll give to my, I'll, I'll do my job. But I'm not going to deplete everything else I have in order to make slightly more money or be slightly more promoted because that's not what life is all about. And I think during the Great Resignation, everyone slowed down enough to be like, oh, this is what's happening. And also, I think there was a, just a complete decimation of like our, you know, our functions of care, you know, caring for kids. I can't imagine being a parent of, you know, my brother and sister-in-law had two kids and my parents thankfully lived here. And could take care of and do homeschool for my brother, for my niece and nephew for almost a year. So my brother and sister-in-law could both keep their jobs because otherwise my brother would have had to 
he's had to leave his. And you know, we don't reward, you know, we don't reward care. We don't, we don't value it. That's why people are still having a hard time getting back to the workforce because kids are in and out of school and daycare is still really difficult. I think that's what, you know, when work becomes the primary focus of your life, it's like we cling to it, but that's not what life is all about. And I think the great resignation really showed people how tenuous our, when we make our identity all about work, how tenuous that is for the rest of the fabric of our lives. Jesus asked people to walk off their jobs in their small family-run businesses. Talk about a slacker. <laughs> he, he approached people who were fishing in their family subsistence fishing business and said, hey, how's about you just come hang with me? And I'll just like create fish out of thin air. And I just see this scene in which the old man goes, what? What? What the fuck? How is this family going to get along without you in the boat? Oh, I will make you fishers of men. Nobody, like we believe the rest of the Bible literally. But when we talk about that, the guy who advocated Walking away, <laughs> the original dude, the original chill man, just sit and we'll eat and whatever will happen. He was it. He was not a big fan of work, 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 90 hours a week so you'll make partner. No, no, he was not. Um, you know, one of the things that I've been reading about since I left my job is about just where this comes from, it's like the Protestant work ethic, like idle hands are the devil's work and industrialization and like the promotion of the nuclear family as a substitute for societal care, right? Like, well, if you're, you know, we've just, dis we've disrupted the villages and said it used to, this is so hard because it didn't used to be done by one person raising one family. It used to be done by a whole village caretaking a village. And we've, we've lost that, that connective tissue that is supports us when times get hard. And I think that's one of the reasons I do what I love to do in business is because, you know, when things get really hard in life, it's who you're, it's who you're connected with. That is what carries you through the hard times. And, you know, small business is a way to, to give back and to be intimately connected with a local even online local community of ecosystem of care that's going to support you when times get tough. So where is Jessica with great spirit, God, universal power, higher power? We're, we love. Uh, you, not we. Where are you? I'm, I'm very much connected to a higher self, a higher power. Um, I don't love the form it shows up in organized religion. I certainly don't love the form it shows up in like kind of like commercialized mindfulness. Um, because again, it's not for profit, but that reconnection and rewilding of my intuition, reconnecting to myself and connecting to like, and recognizing there's a, there is something more powerful than us. And how do I be a part of it that infuses so much of my life and so much of my work? Um, you know, just, I don't know if I love the forms that it's a part of that we, um, because they feel either relatively discriminatory or not really that welcoming or, Kind of commercialized. And so I wish we could get back to the roots of connecting to that higher power and that higher self, but it's, it's part of everything I do. There's a shit ton of anxiety in the culture about all manner of things now. 
And it doesn't matter where you are on the political spectrum. You're just anxious about different things. Yeah. A lot of fear, fear mongering. A lot of the politicization of fear. So at a practical level, how do you not eat fistfuls of Xanax all the time? How do you not just drink boxes and boxes of wine? Part of it is really being very aware with the media I intake. And Amen, sister. Like high five. High five. You know, like um I there's I mute words on Twitter when I'm on there. I curate my LinkedIn and my Instagram feed. I How about time? Time spent. Time spent. I limit I try to limit it, but um I'm not so good at that because I need it for my business. Um but I really um I try to be really intentional um with the time. Like I'm kind of a time tracker. I know where my time is going and I want to be, if I'm filling the time with stuff, I want to be filling the time with things that are messages that are positive, messages that are um, educational, messages that are uplifting and like recognizing that the platforms are incentivized to be political and be, you know, they're incentivized to steal my time and attention for their profit. And so part of it is like recognizing that and be like, okay, like how do I make this a conscious choice? And how do I fill my life with joyful things like this podcast, like our dinner that we're going to later? How do I fill my life with people and with my dog and with my husband and with joyful things and with books that help educate me as to like, what are the factors going on? What's the soup I'm swimming in? And what did the soup is kind of my stuff. And what is the soup that we're swimming in that's cultural the more I know about it, the more I can like make more conscious choices about where I spend my time and where I spend my money. Do you have any hours of the day that you're like, this is quiet time. This is white space. This is sacred. Six to 7 a.m. on almost every day. And what do you do during that time? So I pull a tarot card in the morning when I wake up. I well, I well, more importantly, I take my dog for his morning walk and his morning feeding. What's his name? His name is Logan. What kind of dog? He is Pomeranian Pekingese Rat Terrier. <laughs> we did a DNA test on our dog. <laughs> and he loves mommy time. Yes, he does. We got um, we adopted him during the pandemic, and so in a year we. Um, bought a house, got married, sold my husband's condo, got Mr. Logan Pup. His name is Logan, but that's his Instagram account. And then um, almost, I literally turned on my notice almost a- And a, did you tell Logan not to be shit posting these other Pomeranians? Oh, his dad, his dad owns the account and he doesn't, you know, I, I love the Instagram account. But a year after to the day of like buying the house is when I submitted my resignation. So they tell you, don't get a new job get married and buy a house all the same year. And we're like, let's do it and have COVID on top of that. So I take Logan for a walk. And yes, he is my dog, even though um, my husband adopted him. He's mine. <laughs> um, I read a tarot card. I write in a journal. I look at the phases of the moon. And then I do a little reading. Um, what does the tarot card tell you? It really helps me center into the messages that I'm reading and seeing and feeling. Um Today I pulled the King of Swords and the Swords is the suit. It's all about voice and speaking your voice. And the King of Swords is how are you stepping into saying what needs to be said 
or noticing what needs to be said. And like really it's kind of like that final maturation of power to be like, I speak when it's my time to speak and I'm not, I don't shy away from it. If it's not my time to talk, I don't talk. But how do I use my voice as a kind of like mature, seasoned woman? And Well, that's perfect for you speaking on the podcast. Right, yeah. Um, how do you, How else did you see that King of Swords manifest today? Um, today, I, um, I ran a couple coaching calls today and it's just really about how do I let there be space for them to speak? How do I let them there be space for them to kind of have their authentic voices come through? And then how do I just not hold back? And for so many, many years, I had to hold back on what I had to say because I was the only woman in the room or it wasn't politically correct or, you know, this wasn't going to help me rise up the organization until um, when I started saying F that a lot. Um, people didn't like me very much because um, they're not used to a millennial woman who, quote unquote, should be wanting to climb up the organization, kind of speaking truth to power. And that didn't go over so well. Um, now I don't have to worry about that so much. The great irony is you can be a suck up and a yes woman and, and hollow out your soul and it still won't get you ahead. Like you can totally stuff it, sublimate everything you need to say, and it still doesn't benefit you. That is correct. I've had the also the the luxury of being a highly capable intellectual woman who took a lot of pride in myself on being incredibly high capacity, incredibly high horsepower. So of course they're going to promote someone who's going to be like, give me all the work that I can handle more than should be like one person's job. And I will do it mostly without complaint, do it really well. Um, and then they're like, we'll take that all day long. Oh, you have opinions about it now and you have different differences of how you think we're running things and you actually have data to back it up. Mm, no, no, go back to, go back to just being a workhorse. If you could put your arm around little Jessica or 20 something Jessica about the, everything from the major to the Harvard business school, what would you tell her about sort of eyes wide open about those choices, even if you would have made the same ones? I would tell little Jessica that, um, you're, you're not going to find what you're looking for in someone else's roadmap. You're also not going to find what you're looking for when you're drinking. So those would be the things that I like, my path was not meant like, I'm glad I took the path I took. Um, but I spent too long trying to fit into other people's paths versus really taking the time to understand who Jessica was. Um, I was a chameleon and I was miserable. So if I'd go back and tell little Jessica something, it would be, no, no, stay true to your desires. And when you want to go, when you want to, when they're zigging and you want to zag, go zag because you'll be fine. And when you stepped into your power and discovered it, and I sense this is you're discovering it more and more. Mm -hmm. What kind of surprised you about these talents that you never knew you had? When I moved to Portland, I kept being told, you're really intuitive. You're really intuitive. And I didn't really know what that meant because I'm like, I don't know how to draw. I don't know how to paint. And I'm not a psychic. But I, I love to read. I love to learn. I love to connect. And I can connect a lot of dots I can connect dots from astrology to financial statements to project management. And it's just this holistic love of kind of connecting 
humans, connecting ideas, connecting dots. And when I no longer hid behind, oh, no, I can't talk about this stuff because it's not like, how will people know what I know? And like, what can I like bring my whole self to the party? Once I started doing that, like ideas just start flowing and action starts happening and connections start being made. And I no longer feel like I have to hide anymore. You decide to marry a man. Mm-hmm. Um, and you seem like that's a that was a really good thing. You guys have built something good together. Um, what is an argument in favor of marriage? So in favor of marriage, um, it represents a commitment and it represents a choice to build something with another human being. And that means we're foregoing other choices like to continue building independently or continue looking. But choice is what makes life like meaningful because if you can do it all, then you'll never really settle and you'll never really say, no, I'm going to do something hard on purpose intentionally and spend my life working to grow something. So I think the argument for marriage is that it is a commitment and that deepening that commitment is deepening our lives. And nobody forced you into doing or coerced you into doing anything. It is a genuine relationship of equals, or am I reading too much into that? No, it's definitely a relationship of equals. And, you know, it's funny, we make it, even if we don't get married, we're making a choice. We're making a choice to kind of not settle or think we're not settling. We're making a choice to keep playing the field. We're keeping a choice to keep our options open. We're all making choices. And I chose to build my life with someone that I deeply, deeply care for. Um, and that means I don't get other choices. And I really love that trade-off. Like I want to build, I moved to Charlotte to build roots and I, you can't build roots by, I mean, you can build roots by yourself, but where's the fun in that? Um, but it's like, no, building a life together is, you know, one of the ways that we go from ego to, um, ego to, you know, more than the ego, like, you know, beyond that. Cause when we're building for me, that's, that's one thing, but when we're building for we and beyond ourselves, that's when I think the real life starts to become really meaningful. What I really wanted to talk to you about today was this word that looms large in whenever I bump into anything you write, whatever. And the word is feminism. Mm-hmm. And that word has had a hard go of it. I think that people have saddled that word with a great many things. And I want to break it back to the simplicity. So, Jessica, what does feminism mean to you? What feminism means to me is that we go beyond the self to go to the collective. It means we embrace, you know, rhythms and cycles and seasons instead of linear progression. It means we ex- embrace expansiveness um, in tandem with efficiency. It means we celebrate, you know, giving as much as we celebrate um, receiving. And it's how do we how do we think about again the communities of care? How do we embrace intuition? I think, you know, we there's this masculine-feminine dynamic that mm-hmm. I think plays on gender stereotypes, and so I don't love that duality. But I do think it's 
how do we kind of reclaim what has been lost in our um, desire to make everything super efficient, super linear, and super extractive to our collective fabric for private wealth. Now, what you have just described, and I'm going to push back a little bit, but I hope we get somewhere, is a celebration of the sacred feminine or the best of feminine values, which is great. But I am going to be a man and read you the textbook definition. Perfect. Which is super simple. The doctrine advocating social, political, and all other rights of women equal to those of men. Period. Which includes economic rights, getting paid the same for the same job, which somehow has never become enshrined in the United States Constitution. Why would a person, based upon, let's face it, a rather arbitrary assignment of chromosomes, have fewer rights? That makes no sense whatsoever that that would be... Well, it makes sense to those who, if we have equal rights, and it's not even about equal rights, it's about, you know... I guess I'm not even thinking there's the difference between equality and equity and equality is giving everyone kind of the same thing, but equity is making up for our inherent starting points from, um, where we start from. So I think there's, um, there's giving everyone equal rights. Sure. But I can, I can make the same money as you, but if I still, um, if there's no care at home, And because I might get paid the same if I go into there, but there's a societal expectation that the woman's going to stay home and take care of the kids because someone has to, um, why should it be? You know, I think there's a difference between equal rights and equal kind of like impact on how, how we, the experience we have in the world. So I like to think of it as if we're designing for the most marginalized among us, then everyone's going to thrive because everyone's being seen and taken care of. Um, And I would actually say that there's a large portion of the population that actually does not want women to have equal rights because otherwise some of the decisions made during the, um, the summer of this year would not have happened because they don't want women to have equal rights because if they have equal rights, then they're going to lose their own power. You mean the Supreme Court decision? Supreme Court decision. Uh, many, de- yeah, the Supreme Court decision. But, you know, there's lots of decisions that have been made. Um, by the states. By the states, by the Supreme Court, by the, you know, by a lot of our politicians that um, explicitly say we, you know, we, you know, we can't have equal rights because we are not equal human beings in the sense of like, we have to actually give women reproductive autonomy where we don't actually have to give that to men because they don't necessarily have the same, you know, we've got different, (laughs) we've got different parts, different parts. Right. So like, I think it's, it's how do we design for the most marginalized around us and um, make our world that everyone has an equal chance of uh, surviving and thriving. I think that's broader than feminism because also, you know, if we give equal rights to women, but yet they're starting from a different place and therefore, and we've got different, you know, gender norms, but yes, we have the same rights. Does that still leave us in an, an equitable society? Um, 
now we're well into the fall going into winter. Um, do you feel more hopeful, less hopeful? Um, more hopeful, but still sad. Um, you know, I, I believe we're witnessing kind of the slow decline of our democracy and I don't know what fixes that. Um, but I'm more hopeful that, um, because I mean, it's, it's been, you know, it's been, we're trying to take voting rights away from people. We're trying to like crack and pack districts so that, um, all voices don't get represented. Um, I believe I'm more hopeful that we have, we have, um, at least in the short term stemmed the tide of, um, you know, real election deniers. And, um, but does that mean that the next generation is going to play more of that playbook or is going to like have the same kind of playbook, but then not quite be as extreme so that they're going to get elected. I don't, I don't know. Um, but at least I rec at least I feel good about the fact that, um, at least in the next two years, like a national, uh, a national abortion ban won't be, um, won't be implemented because of the Supreme, because of where the, the Democrats hold the Senate. I wish that the, the results in our government bodies and our judicial system reflected the um, the attitudes of the, the public. And I, you know, like granted, sometimes they're going to make decisions that are beyond where the public wants to be in like a progressive stance. And sometimes uh, we're going to be behind. But I really wish that our seats of power more accurately reflect, reflected the will of the people on um on a broader scale um you may you know throw things at me or whatever but i want to ask a difficult question that i'm kind of wrestling with okay okay yesterday i met a stripper she's in her 20s very attractive and she got a college degree and could have worked uh in financial services and she makes a ton of money, um, a ton more money. And so she elects to do what she does as opposed to crunch numbers, even though she does do her own taxes yeah. quite well. <laughs> so um, how do you feel about women who elect to make porn or uh, do sex work of all varieties, including stripping. As long as they have their own agency to do it, I love it for them. Um, what if they were sexually abused as teenagers? Well, then I don't think they're doing it necessarily under their own agency. I think there's something behind that. But, you know, that's, I think, we have this. How do you guard against that? That's what I'm getting at. I don't think you guard against against it as much as you, um, as if we were to destigmatize sex work in a way that allowed people to get mental health treatment in a way that allowed them to help get insurance, allowed that to, um, you know, be able to get paid on normal third-party processing systems. Um, like because it's stigmatized, people can't necessarily get the support they need. And Jessica, I think the cam girls are doing quite well. Well, actually, no, they keep um, like, you know, there's a big revolt with Only OnlyFans where they're going to um, say that there could be no kind of sex work on OnlyFans because of their um, 
kind of the, the Visa MasterCard said, no, we're not going to still work with you if you're doing sex work. They can't do Venmo or something, PayPal. They're going to, you know, banks are cracking, cracking down on, on that. So like they were banned from Tumblr. They were kind of, they set up on OnlyFans and then they were like, no, no, we're going to take your OnlyFans away. Another great reason to come back to crypto in some form. <laughs> well, not if SBF is taking care of it. No, I understand. I understand. I haven't given up. Yeah. I haven't given up that the blockchain can be useful in any number of ways, just not in these get rich quick. Exactly. Ways. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm also, this brings up all kinds of things. And part of this is just, um, it's unfair when this should be your time, but I'm interested in, you know, where feminism sort of comes down on all this because it seems to be a rethinking of the damage done to individuals and to culture, institution of marriage, women, girls, um, by just Katie bar the door, all kinds of sex. I mean, not to mention basically um, normalizing incest, um, which not good for anybody. Um, so I think we can talk about the damage writ large and this kind of libertarianism has incredible costs at the individual level and also at the societal level. And so I'm wrestling with this as a sometimes consumer of all this and as a man who, you know, wants to be a decent dad and a decent husband, but not a Puritan. So as a feminist, help a man wrestle with the complexities of this culture we're in. Yeah, I don't know if I'll do it justice as a <laughs> as a new You're not as, gonna fix it. as a new feminist, but I think it's um it's less about, you know, sex work leading to this culture as it about it's a culture of exploitation. If we force people into doing sex work to survive, if we if we remove their agency from being tested for STDs, if we, you know, don't pay them and like rely on like, you know, strip they take half their tips for, you know, it's if we don't have they're base, not really independent contractors. They're not so really it's independent. Kind of like the newsboys. Yeah, they're not really independent contractors. So if we um and if we don't provide universal basic income, if we re require health insurance to be tied to having a corporate employer, you know, we and if we you know, if we don't provide like I think the larger portion that contributes to um you know, some of these ills of society is that we our education system is so underfunded that we're not giving people a, you know, a good education, white men in particular, like we're letting video games take over. I think video games and more in the destructive power of like alt-right, um, you know, take the word out, but like the social networks that like have destroyed the fabric of culture are contributing more to the ills you see than like, like freely adult, cons highly consensual sex work. And so I think it's like, when, um, you know, when, when porn is this, oh my God, no, we can't do it thing. 
Well, that just puts it behind a paywall, which means that it's more ripe for exploitation. Um, you know, we think about like, I just think about like alcohol for in Europe versus America, like alcohol here, amazing abuse problems, right? You know, you go to college and it's like, you get blackout drunk and that's normalized. But in Europe, we don't see that because it's more, it's more accepted. It's not as shunned. So by having more of this Puritan culture where sex is seen as, as dirty and bad versus saying like, our bodies are our bodies and we should love them and be comfortable with them and acknowledge all their types. I think it's the judgment and like the dismissal that we put on, on women's bodies and like the shame that goes around women's bodies that contribute to these cultures where it feels like it's okay for a man to take advantage of a woman. You and I have a party to go to. <laughs> I, I appreciate you. It's really interesting because Lauren and I had a discussion and, and she said, uh, I think Jessica and I have been good for each other because we pushed each other towards each other's position, like challenge, like steel sharpens steel. Mm -hmm. There's a huge amount of respect for what you all bring. Um, I've asked this question before. It may be a throwaway, but um, what is a value traditionally associated with men? It's historically a masculine value that you find to be admirable, noble even. Yeah. Um, I think reason and order is, you know, like, I, I don't want to dismiss the logic. I don't want to, I don't want to take logic away because that's, you know, we live too much in the thinking brain. Um, but I think that like, if it's too, you know, we have to have logic and we have to passion. We have to have, have, have reason and intuition. And I think either of those without the other is like, it's the yin without the yang. And so, you know, it's like when I work in the business world, it's like, I want you to have emotion. I want you to have intuition. I also want you to know your numbers. So we can't have one without the other. Numbers aren't bad. Intuition isn't bad. We need to have both. So that's the one it's, um, it's very traditionally celebrated and it's like, okay, speaking up and Thinking clearly, that's kind of celebrated as being like a more masculine dominant left brain idea. But I think it's it needs to be we can't throw we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We have to be holistic, you know, divine masculine and divine feminine, um, yin and yang together, because otherwise we're missing the components of a holistic life. Number one historically feminine trait characteristic which straight, hetero, cisgender males could incorporate more or build up more? Um, emotional intelligence. <laughs> and what does that look like? It's listening. It's being okay with being silent. It's, it's accepting and naming emotions and not being afraid to have emotions or to honor emotions or thinking emotions are bad. You know, like boys don't cry. Like that's like the worst thing that we can teach our, our men is be is to teach them to be emotionally guarded and to not show their feelings because when that stuff bottles up, that's when we have problems. PTSD, among others. Among yeah. others. Yeah. If we got struck by lightning today and the only thing that survived is this little piece of digital audio, what is your legacy? My legacy is a framework for how we build strong, sustainable businesses and 
I think there's an impact that's going to be seen in the Charlotte area. Because of Jessica. Because of Jessica. That's pretty amazing. I am so appreciative and grateful to you for making this time when we could have been partying. We could Jessica. have been partying. And this conversation went in a very different direction than I thought it was going to go. But well, I never know where it's going. I never either. know what's going either. But I appreciate you being game and up for it. Thank you. I appreciate it too. And Jessica and I were an hour, hour and a half late for Lauren's Friendsgiving, which was fun. It was fun seeing all these powerful women, powerful people, up-and-coming entrepreneurs. I glean an awful lot from her about the yin and the yang, the reason and the intuition. So thank you, Jessica. In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Katherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported voicelocket.com, manlistening.com, and the big podcast in her words from the very beginning. Coming up on three years, Big three years, never missed an episode. Thanks so very much. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs>